seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The former nurse, Lucy Letby, has been found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Between June 2015 and June 2016, babies who seemed to be doing reasonably well would suddenly collapse. Lucy Letby was the common factor. The verdicts make the 33-year-old Britain's most prolific baby killer. Lucy Letby, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. This was a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It's now a podcast about one of the worst serial killers in modern times. At 12.52pm on Friday, August the 18th, 2023, we brought you the news that a neonatal nurse was guilty of killing babies in her care. After a trial lasting for over 10 months and more than 110 hours of painstaking deliberation, the jury decided that Lucy Letby murdered seven babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and she tried to kill six more. She was cleared of two further charges of attempted murder and the jury could not reach verdicts on six further allegations. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I've been in court throughout and have reported on the case as it developed. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week we've examined what's happened and brought you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So Liz, today's episode is about the people who we met Mm -hmm. during this trial because they were sitting in court eight. And as we know, court eight was next to court seven where the main trial was happening. And it was basically the public gallery. Yeah. We became really conscious, didn't we, during the trial of a few people who were there consistently. Yeah, so Court 7 essentially was full as soon as the families, Lucy Letby's family, the journalists, the police officers, there was no space for the public in the public gallery. So what the court management team did at Manchester Crown Court was facilitate Court 8 next door to be free for members of the public And we've talked about this before, haven't we, on the podcast about justice being seen to be done and how it's important that anyone that feels that they want to go and watch a court case or observe a court case should be allowed to go in. It's a fundamental cornerstone of British justice Mm, that the public should be allowed into the court. It's open justice. Yeah. And it became clear to me after 
a few months probably in that the same people were yeah. coming every day or every other day or a couple of times a week to watch what was going on. And we all became quite friendly with them. Mm, Obviously, we see them in the corridor quite a lot. We got talking to them and we were fascinated really about why they felt it important to come and why they were so invested in it. Well, one of the reasons they felt it important to come and were so invested was because they were listening to the podcast. Oh, Yeah, I mean, a lot of them started reading about the trial in the press and then got to know about our podcast and were following it and thought, probably because we had some guests on, obviously, that talked about the importance of the public being allowed to go into court. And some of them, I know for definite, decided, well, if we're allowed to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go along and have a look. Yeah, they felt this was important. Yeah. What's really interesting about this, uh, and it was it was such an amazing conversation with four of them, wasn't it? So mm. we've got a criminology student, a lady who runs a small business from home. We've got two retired nurses. They started out with a really open mind. And certainly one of them, Mary, mm. desperately wanted it not to be true. Yeah, she wanted Lucy Letby to be innocent, really, because she didn't want her profession to be tarnished or, you know, damaged by the fact that a nurse could possibly have done these things. And talking to them was fascinating. None of them knew each other no. before they started coming to court, but became good friends over the 10 months of the trial. They'll be lifelong friends, probably. With I those completely four. agree. They were really kind. They don't live anywhere near Manchester, actually. And they travelled over to the studio here and chatted to us for an afternoon. Welcome to episode 62, The Court Watchers. So we've got Jane, we've got Mary, we've got Ollie and we've got Jules with us. Ollie, tell me what made you want to follow the trial? I'm a former criminology student, so that gives some insight, I suppose, as to why I've been following the trial. I've always had that interest in sort of crime and the criminal justice system and the process that it follows. I first started coming to the trial in about late May, I think it was, during the cross-examination. I think the motivation for coming was I'd already formed certain opinions around the case from uh, following it in the media and obviously via this podcast, and uh, I just wanted to get a view from myself. Jules, you've also been following it a lot. What made you come quite a distance from your home yeah. to the court every day? Um, I think originally I'd followed it in the media, the Chester Standard, and then found your podcast, which is gold, by the way. You had a court journalist on. He gave a really good report about, you know, how the criminal justice system should be opened. And if the public don't go, then maybe one day it might end up behind closed doors. And mm. I just thought, well, I've never been to court. This case is intriguing me anyway. And then you sort of think, well, do you know what? I think I'm going to go and actually see for myself. Jane, you came from almost day one, didn't you? Yes, that's right. So yes. just explain why you wanted to come. Well, I'd, I'd read quite a lot um, in the press beforehand. And it was the medical facts, having been a nurse, I'm a retired nurse. It wasn't neonatal nursing I did, it was general nursing and paediatrics, mm -hmm. but... I was interested in the medical background to all of this. I had read that there was um, a rise in fatalities and um, I, I was 
interested to find out what was behind it all. And then, of course, when I arrived at court that first week, I realised that there was more to this case than I think the defence tried to imply was bad practice mm. or... Failings at the hospital. Failings, mm. yes. But it was the medical details mm. and mm. the nursing practices, which for me, listening to all that, was actually like being back at work. I could literally sense the the feeling what it would be like in, in that unit. That they were baffled, you mean? They were baffled. Yeah. Mm. How how could these highly skilled doctors not make sense of what was happening? Mm. And yet, in the midst of it all was one name that ran through it all. Yeah. And that was when I thought, well, I need to put things on hold and I'm going to see this through. When you came to court, Jane, a bit like Jules, you'd seen it reported in the papers, you knew somebody had been arrested, you knew they'd been charged, you knew the scale of it. Did you come with a really open mind at the beginning as a nurse, as a, as a, as a former nurse? Yes, I did. There was something really in the back of my mind queried why there were no answers to some of these problems that, that were occurring. And I wonder, as a nurse, obviously you watched these nurses from the countess file in time and again some of them had to come back to give evidence can you imagine what that must have been like for them having to come to court oh yes and and to actually speak about your fellow colleagues that you've you've worked alongside and try to just to be objective and and say what you saw what you didn't see etc etc it was almost like seeing things unravel I'll bring Mary in if that's all right now, because Mary, you're also a tired nurse. As Jane has already said, those babies were not ill as such. Mm. And so that was why the collapses were unexpected and inexplicable. Did you come with an open mind to the trial? Did you come thinking, there's no way someone of my profession could have done this? I came with sympathy for the nurse, I must say. Mm -hmm. um, a professional sympathy. I didn't want it to be a nurse. And I clung to that idea for about three days. I, I arrived in time for the uh, cross-examination and that was what I really needed because sitting at home and reading the press, I couldn't really get the detail. And that really started to clarify my thoughts and it just became clearer and clearer in my mind that unfortunately a nurse seemed to have been the perpetrator. That was not what I wanted to find. That's one of the things that struck me from uh, certainly post the verdicts. Nobody wanted to believe mm. what mm. was happening was mm. down to deliberate harm. If people haven't heard that interview with Paul Hughes on the podcast, it's it's really moving, isn't it, Ollie? Yeah. yeah. They have gone into it with, with an open mind to say, well, what has happened? So, Jules, you were there for her defence. I know that that was kind of one of the most anticipated days I think for me in the trial. I, I think I probably thought she was guilty by then but I thought if she's got any chance of kind of convincing the jury that she hadn't done it, she needed to make them like her. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. What, what did you think about her? I wasn't expecting someone so controlled. 
maybe she's had so long to get used to the idea of the trial that then maybe it could be that. I just found her different on each day. So some days she was polite and plausible, mm-hmm. but very self-assured the whole time. And other days she was petulant. I felt quite confused by, at times, why she had decided to t- to take the stand because she gave... We had we had long stretches where she didn't give any information at all. I, she could have clarified things, but we got started to get the repetitive. I don't recall. I, I have no memory that. of that, mm. and so on. She wanted to take control of the interview. She wanted to control the pace, mm. and she would only reply when she was ready with the yes, the no. I don't know. I don't remember. And she, she almost looked at times that she was um, insulted that she was being asked these questions. Mm, I, you know, how, I thought it was interesting that at times when Ben Myers or Nick Johnson were taking her through the actual medical evidence that she, she looked like she quite enjoyed kind of explaining. The only the, thing that she faltered over was not having the knowledge when it came to the babies that were were given the insulin, mm-hmm. I think she was then out of her depth with the reference to the C-peptides. She actually, I won't say admit, she, what's the word I'm looking for? Acknowledged. She, she acknowledged that the insulin episodes couldn't have happened naturally. That mm-hmm. moment was one of those moments where I thought she's already admitting that something exogenous, as they, that it's called, yeah. has, has affected these babies. And then she qualified it by saying, yes, I agree, but it wasn't me. That was a key moment, Mary, for you as well, the insulin, wasn't it? It absolutely was. That was what really got me on the train and coming into court, which up to that point I had no intentions of doing. I've never been to court, never seen the need to go to court. But that was when I realised that so much more detail was um, being discussed and being explored in court than I was aware of. Mm-hmm. I felt I really needed to understand as much as I could because I didn't want it to be a nurse, you know, anything but. But unfortunately, as I said, after about three days, I was very much and reluctantly becoming persuaded that it was starting to look as though it couldn't be anybody else. I said at the start that I'd developed opinions already from following the case online prior to attending court. Those views were that Lucy Letby was guilty, primarily due to the the lie that she told about knowing what their embolism was, but thinking that it only occurred in adults. That was just not credible. That sort of like solidified it for me that she was she was guilty. I found her to be deeply, deeply dishonest in some of the answers she gave. Well, in most of the answers she gave. Go Commando Just, was the one for go me. Commando. I don't know what Go Commando is. Yeah, that was, I do now, but I yeah. didn't at the time. <laughs> well, bless I mean, you, Mary. <laughs> I'm, I'm still proud of myself for not bursting out laughing during that particular exchange between her and Nick Johnson. It was just so, so ridiculous. And then the final day of uh, a cross-examination, that Friday was particularly... Damning, I thought, in terms of just ripping apart a whole tissue of lies around being isolated from colleagues, not being allowed to socialise with them, mm. 
Which actually turned out to not be true. Not be they true. were all that, going that out. Social yeah, life dossier going that, out. that social life dossier, even just down to silly, silly things around, oh, I was taken out of the house in my pyjamas. It was actually Which a... Was a lie. It was actually a, a Lee Cooper legis suit, as Nick Johnson called it, a track suit. <laughs> yeah. Well, we saw that, didn't we, yes. on the yeah. arrest yes. video? Yeah. So from listening to her in court, yeah. I just found her to be <laughs> someone who's a compulsive liar. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the things that I found really a bit mind-blowing, actually, in the end, was just how calculating the whole thing was. You know, rewriting reports, timing things differently than they actually occurred. The text messages, as Ollie refers to, like setting things up. This baby's got sepsis. This baby's not looking well. It was so clever. It was really clever. So clever that I thought it it can't be true. You know, the the, the Mm. prosecution have found this stuff. Have they really linked it together wrongly? But as it came out and it continued and it continued, it just became clear that, unfortunately, that seems to be the case, that she had planned these things. When they found all the material was taking home handover sheets Mm. and the massive amount of, of paperwork confidential stuff that she shouldn't have had at home at all and her diaries uh, with coded messages her looking up families it became a second occupation for her didn't it almost like another job because she'd nothing much else in her life her life was that unit wasn't it it fed her need to be needed and Mm. to be in control and to to relish the uh, situations and the collapses. So you think that she enjoyed the kind of drama of yes. it? And oh, do you I'm think convinced. she wanted to be seen as almost a hero and save I'm some of them? I'm convinced, yes, okay. I'm convinced. I really don't know, I'm not mm. a psychologist, but there is such a thing as the code blue junkie. It's um, a term given to people in emergency situations who revel in an emergency um, atmosphere, they're highly skilled themselves. They want to be the ones that are seen to be doing the resuscitation so well, whatever level of practitioner they are. And they revel in the attention of almost bringing these people back, back to life from the brink of death. Ultimately, it's power that, isn't it? Yes, it's playing God. That's actually what David Wilson said in uh, our Vanilla Killer episode. That's right. That she had a hero complex Mm. and, you know, wanted to be at the centre of things. Yes. 
It's interesting these discussions around potential motivations and motivating factors. One of the things that I've sort of come to believe regarding Lucy Letby is that she has actually enjoyed inflicting that trauma on the families, in, inflicting that grieving. She was almost enjoying being the hero for these parents who was the one that could help them in their grief in that final moment. She was the one who wanted to do the bathing for them and re reminisce about the first bath and all. It was almost, it was quite disturbing. She couldn't no. stay away from it, could she? She, she was told to come out of the, the rooms, but she, she kept returning to the rooms. It was as though she was just drawn to it and yeah. couldn't leave it alone. I was struck by how much power she was exercising on the ward. She was exercising power in subtle ways. She was putting out crash calls, as we've already discussed, ensuring that the person that she wanted to come to respond to the crash came. She's creating bedlam, really, at times. She was working overtime, so she was hardly ever away from the place and she was keeping tabs on colleagues even when she wasn't on duty and even disturbingly it seems she was going in to the unit at night when oh, she shouldn't yeah, have been that was the bit that got me which was very disturbing she, even more disturbing there wasn't much date and door data yeah there was about that. Data. so somewhere policies have been fudged there she claimed that it was to Update nursing charts, yeah, was it? So, well. so late at night, and I couldn't quite grasp that. And she volunteered for shifts. All the time. Why was her next line manager not saying, I'm sorry, but you know, you need to be off duty and get some sleep, some rest, some mm. whatever. Why does he allow it? Why does he allow her to do all these extra shifts? Not only that, why did they allow nurses with phones in the oh, pockets okay. all the time. I find that absolutely appalling. Poor leadership. That they were able, at a bedside, a cot side, I should say, they were able to text friends and, and give them updates. Well, she claimed, didn't she, that it was she would never do that at a cot side, but it was, but it even so, it was even, prolific, wasn't it? If you were at a nurse's sa station, it's usually to, to file your own reports and uh, put things onto a computer that, you know, you're memorising and whatever. So you're saying you would only really use your phone if you're on a break? Definitely. Okay. Definitely, definitely. I can't understand how that was allowed mm -hmm. to happen. One of the horrifying things to me that has certainly come over during prosecution and the matching of data has been the sleight of hand that has gone on here. Go on, what do you mean? Well, I mean, a nurse should be with the patient or the person they're caring for as much as possible and as much as needed. Nobody will be surprised at a nurse's constancy by the, the side of a fragile baby. It wouldn't occur to you that anything abnormal was going on. Mm. The evidence was it would take, you know, five millilitres of air Oof. in a baby's bloodstream to kill them. So the time that would take to, to inject would be seconds, I assume. Yes, it would. And to think that you could have been on duty at that time when that was happening mm -hmm. would be, I can't speak for those nurses, but for me, I would be disturbed forever, probably. If I can just ask just some final thoughts from you all around... The impact, your lasting impression, how you now feel. I'll start with you, Ollie. It still hasn't fully sunk in yet. What I've uh, 
would have borne witness to at Manchester Crown Court over the last few months and certainly my thoughts and my last my impressions are just thinking of the, the people that have been personally impacted by this the families that have lost children the families that are now having to care for children who have lifelong disabilities because of Lucy Lepby's actions the medical staff that will have been undoubtedly traumatised from Lucy Lepby's actions and having to try to revive those children and on my way here today was came past Manchester Crown Court and there was no obviously it was empty there was no press or anything like that and it's just shows how sort of life will move on for those of us who've attended in person but you can't help but think of the people for whom this will never go away life will never be the same again because of one woman's evil actions it's not something that you can just put down and walk away from we still don't know any motive it's impossible to figure the kind of character that has acted this whole scenario out the enormity of the whole situation but also the the jury they've yes, listened they've given them 10 months of their lives and they have dealt with everything with such diligence resilience and i really hope that they seek any help they need and that so they can heal from this process mm-hmm. the overriding feeling for me is of course it's sympathy for the families and what they've been put through all these years but also is an absolute respect for the men and women and the team that have brought all this uh, to well it's not closed yet what an absolutely fantastic job they've done and also we should be so grateful for the criminal justice system that we have it is second to none Jules Ollie Jane and Mary thank you so much thank you So that's it for episode 62. We'll be back next week as usual. But before we go, we did just want to share that last night we attended a vigil at Chester Cathedral where candles were lit for the babies that Lucy let be murdered. It was an incredibly poignant service and we thought you'd like to hear it. Uh, So I'm Mark, I'm the Bishop of Chester. I just think it's really important that we gather in a place like this at a time when people are despairing, where they don't know where to turn, where there's anger, confusion, grief, all the things we were trying to capture in the service. Because actually the church exists to hold those kind of things when we don't know what else to do with them. And to just introduce some voice of hope. We're mourning the loss of children, of babies, in a most unjust way. Uh, But it was also really good uh, to be together. So I'm Tim Stratford. If you like titles, very Reverend Doctor. If you don't, ignore that. Um, (laughs) Cathedral Dean of Chester. The stories behind each of these children's deaths are immensely painful, aren't they? And, you know, at one level, we're used to hearing awful things and we can be immune. uh, But here, we've entered into that pain and felt it and feel it. And I think 
you know, living in Chester, this has happened in this community. I've asked myself uh, and in conversation with others, heard the same, how could this happen here? Mm, yeah. This has happened in the hospital that serves as a place that we know as a place of care. How could it happen here? series Everything I Know About Me is back for a brand new season and this time our guest needs no introduction. Oh gosh, you find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins and this is Everything I Know About Me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.